Welcome to the weekly message from Rama Family Church. It is our hope that as you listen to this message, you will come to know Jesus better and be established in your faith and equipped for the work of the ministry. You can view the sermon notes and listen online at rhema.org.au forward slash media. Welcome to Christian Worldview. I'm, I'm very excited to be here again and um, very privileged to be able to share uh, this space here tonight and to share on how we can think a little bit deeper about our faith and how we can better understand and better articulate what we actually believe as Christians. Just to recap, just for anybody who um, maybe is just visiting for the first time or is just checking in, we've started going through some of the major topics in worldview discussion and looking at some of the big, broader um, subjects such as origin, meaning, purpose, and things like that. And if you recall, last time we looked at creation, um, we looked at some of the main um, studies found in science and using logic, looking at cosmology, um, looking at the fine-tuning of the universe, and then we also looked at specified complexity within DNA. Um, And we have recently also just um, had Easter. Um, I love Easter. It's such a great time to celebrate such a central truth of our faith, that Jesus is risen and that he has defeated the power of sin and death, and that we too now rest in the hope, the great hope of our resurrection to come because of that. So, amen. So originally with Easter just passing, I thought, what better topic to talk about than the resurrection of Jesus? However, the topic of the resurrection surrounds itself amongst a variety of other related topics, such as the nature and scope of evidence, ethics, justified or warranted belief, and, but at the foundation, there's something that was more pivotal that I thought would be more beneficial to talk about leading up to the resurrection, and that is the subject of miracles. I'm sure you've heard about what happened to Moses after the exodus through the Red Sea. Moses' staff could no longer perform miracles, and yet he still kept it by his side all his life. He just couldn't part with it. That's a terrible joke. No one laughed. But for real, the topic of miracles is foundational to Christianity. And it's really important because it follows that if the resurrection or any other miracle occurred, then God exists. This is crucial, as I mentioned, because at the centre of the Christian faith is the claim that an actual resurrection took place in history at a specific geographical location and time. However, if miracles are not even possible or rational to hold to, then the Christian worldview isn't looking very good, is it? So, if there can be no miracles, then there can be no incarnation of Jesus, and there can be no resurrection of Jesus. And therefore, two core and essential doctrines of the Christian faith cannot be true. And like Paul said in the New Testament... If Christ is not risen, then your faith is in vain. So I thought, fundamentally, before we look at the resurrection, it would be very important to go through miracles. So I originally had planned to dive into the resurrection, but um, I think that's what we're going to do next week. So hopefully tonight this will give us enough to be able to um, go that direction with that. So tonight we're going to spend most of the time looking at the nature of miracles, and um, so that will adequately prepare us for next time. Is that okay? So when talking about miracles, or just even thinking about miracles, 
many questions often come up. Questions like, are miracles even possible? Is it rational to believe in miracles? What evidence do we have to warrant belief in miracles? Do miracles still occur today? Do miracles violate natural laws? What do miracles tell us about God? And other questions like this. But first, let's start by defining what a miracle is. According to the Oxford Dictionary, a miracle is an extraordinary and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore attributed to a divine agency. So a miracle cannot be just any kind of unusual event either. Such as, my husband finally took out the trash. It's a miracle. Or, wow, the Brisbane Broncos have finally won a game. It's a miracle. These are reference to a thing's frequency or their rarity of occurring, not actually the miraculous, even though they sometimes get confused. So there are actually six known categories of the unusual or unusual events that often do get mistaken as miracles, um, for as miracles. And so it's good to talk about those as well. So we know what we're talking about when we say, this is a miracle, or that's not a miracle, um, to help better shape our worldview as Christians and to help us also communicate that more clearly to, our, to the world around us. So firstly, we have anomalies. Okay? Anomalies are, for example, um, the bumblebee is a good example of this. For years, scientists didn't know what made the bumblebee fly. They couldn't make sense of how the wings to weight ratio made sense. They didn't, know, they didn't get how it would lift. They thought it was too heavy for the amount of power it could produce to lift. Um, it was considered a freak of nature, an anomaly. Now, we do know now that they have some kind of inherent power pack that allows them to you know, bring out that much power to be able to lift. But for that time, when they didn't know, it was considered, some people might have called it a miracle that the bumblebee flies. That's not technically a miracle. That is an anomaly. So it's a different category. Um, secondly would be magic, right? Um, when the magician pulls a rabbit out of a hat, for example... Uh, we know that rabbits don't come from hats. That's, like, obvious. Um, but we do know it's not a natural thing, right? Um, so it's quite man-contained, and it's unnatural. And that, it would be sleight of hand. We see magicians do this all the time. Not necessarily a spiritual thing. Um, sometimes I've seen some videos where I thought there could be something going on there that's spiritual. Uh, but, in, but in saying that, most things, I think, in the magic sleight of hand stuff is just sleight of hand very brilliant at what they do. Again, that's not miracles. Um, the third would be psychosomatic. So, psychosomatic would be more of a mind over matter type of thing. Um, I remember this example. There was a, as a pastor in the States, um, and he had an analogy to flowers. So, every time he saw a flower or touched a flower, um, he would start getting all these rashes, and he would start his nose would start running and all these symptoms would start um, turning up. And one time he went to this church to visit, he was a guest speaker, and um, he noticed there were flowers at the front of the stage. And so he asked one of the ushers to just kindly remove the flowers because he knew that he wouldn't be able to preach if they were still there. And they noticed that as he was saying, he was sniffing and sniffling and his nose started running and all these symptoms started coming back up. To which they said, these are plastic flowers, these aren't real. They're actually fake. And to his confusion and to his embarrassment, he, um, he realised that it wasn't an actual allergy he had to flowers, but it was something that was in the mind. Um, he just thought that every time he 
got in contact with the flower, he would have uh, an allergic reaction, but it wasn't physically the case. Um, so that's something like an example of mind over matter. We also see this in the, like a placebo effect, right? We can take a, a drug that's, you, you believe it's doing something, and so you get results, but you find out later it's just made, it's mostly made of something like water and sugar. Um, and so you're like, oh, you know, the water and the sugar probably didn't heal, heal me. It was more just mental. So that's psychosomatic. Again, it's not miracles, but it's an unusual event that sometimes gets mistaken for as, as, as a, a miracle. Satanic signs. This one is spiritual, okay? So obviously you've got demonic stuff that, that takes place. Um, we know in the Old Testament with Moses, right? Um, the priests, what were they doing? We had Aaron and Moses with the staff, and there were the priests that were doing certain signs and wonders. Um, this is of a supernatural nature. Um, it's not natural. But it wouldn't classify as a miracle either, because a miracle comes from God. It, the source of it is good, and it's not limited. We saw that the powers that the, that the priests had was limited. And so the supernatural satanic signs have limit. Um, it's from an evil source, um, and they're essentially... For the, for the main point, they're not miraculous, even though they do look sometimes like a miracle. Um, they are not. So that one's, that one's a big one. The next one is divine providence. This one's probably the most easily mistaken for as miracles. Divine providence is what we understand to be like a prearranged event, something that God does um, before time. He sets a world up in such a way that something that he wanted to occur will take place in time. And it doesn't have to be technically ascribed to God directing that miracle in that moment in time. It's something he set up that he knows will eventuate. So a good example of this was when I first met Anna, I thought it was a miracle that she wasn't taken and I thought it was a miracle that I met her, got to talk to her and eventually married her. Um, and it still felt like a miracle. Um, but when you consider all of the things that God did to bring about our meeting and the people that came into our lives and the timing and all of that, um, that fits the definition of providence, not so much a, a miracle, even though it's very similar. And then the sixth category is a miracle, which is something like the resurrection, something like the parting of the Red Sea, um, something like fire coming down from heaven when Elijah um, commanded. Um, these things don't have natural explanations for them. And um, these things are divine acts. They're supernatural. They suspend natural laws. They never fail. And they're from a good source that brings glory to God. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about miracles. Um, they have to fit those categories, those um, properties of what the word means. So what's the whole point of a miracle? We've talked about what a miracle is. Why miracles? A miracle confirms the message. Many years ago, if a king wanted to convey a message to another king, what would he do? He, he didn't have a phone back then. He couldn't just Skype the guy. He would send a message, right? He would send a letter, and he would put a seal on that letter, showing that that message was, in fact, from the king. The seal would have to also ensure that the recipient knew with confidence that the message was actually, in fact, from the king and not somebody else. And so something that he would do to ensure that was he would make sure that the seal was unique to the king and that it was difficult to forge. The seal had to be recognizably different to all other seals, otherwise you could not recognize it and therefore 
you would not know the significant um, importance of that message. And also, it had to be difficult to forge, as I mentioned. The king didn't just grab any old pebble or stick um, that would be easily replicable. Uh, it would be something that um, wouldn't be easy to forge. The seal would need to be not easily copied so that the king's message were clearly distinguishable from frauds for obvious reasons. It seems to me that this is why miracles are done. Miracles confirm the message. And we see this all throughout the Bible. And we mentioned a few earlier, Elijah, showing that he has a message from God. Fire comes down from heaven to confirm that his message was authoritative and legitimately from God. So what do miracles show us about God? Miracles show us that God is not distant, that he is intricately involved and connected within our our world and our lives. God did not just create the universe, but then remain distant to it. Miracles show us something about God. They show us something about his power, something about his love, sometimes something about his imminence and closeness, sometimes his righteous anger or justice. But miracles always show us this, his intention to be involved in our world and to fulfill his purpose for creation. Miracles confirm the message. And we know that miracles happen quite a lot in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. We see about half of the Gospel of Mark records miracles and uh, exorcisms, casting out of demons. And the same is with about one-fifth of the book of Acts. And throughout the Bible, there are an estimated 250 or so miracles that are recorded. And who knows how many countless others that have occurred outside of the Scriptures. And if anybody is interested in studying something deeper on the topic of miracles, there's a guy by the name of Craig Keener. He recently wrote a two-volume book on the, uh, on the topic. It's a massive amount of stuff to go through. But he documents all these miracle claims, hundreds and gives you rigorous scientific data to back it. And um, if that's something you're interested in, um, I really, really recommend looking at that. So I'll just take a minute if someone wants to take a photo. Craig Keener. His work's a little bit academic, um, but he's got some great cases in there, some really good things to, to think through. So how does one come to accept miracles? Many of us come to believe in miracles from a young age by simply reading stories in the Bible. Others of us have personally experienced miracles ourselves or we've witnessed somebody else experience a miracle and that's led us to believe in miracles. And others have looked at the evidence of a case and concluded with a miracle. I know for myself I came to believe in miracles being raised as a Christian from reading the Bible but I also have experienced um, things in my life that I would point to as miraculous. Um, I'll just share a quick personal story. When I was, oh, this is about seven or eight years ago now, um, I contracted some kind of infection. It was a staph infection, and um, it just got into my hand on the top here. And I didn't know how bad it was. I'd never really had a staph infection before. So because of that ignorance, I just left it and thought it would go away. Um, but it didn't, and it got worse and worse, and my whole arm swelled up. And I had to go have some surgery on, on the top here. Um, and it was, it was painful and, and very messy. Um, but it came back again a few weeks later, and it came out of this side of my hand in my finger. Um, and it started coming back and back more and more. And I was beginning to get a bit worried with this 
because I'd never experienced it before and it was really starting to scare me. I thought I'd, my mind would go wild places, like what if this is for life and what, what if something real terrible happens? And they end, I went to the doctors and they gave me antibiotics and each dose of antibiotics that the doctors gave me, it just turned out that these antibiotics weren't the right type and they weren't actually fighting the bug. They did the opposite. They actually made the bug stronger. And so it became a super bug, really resistant. And so I actually um, got MRSA, um, which is an acronym for a longer word I won't try and pronounce here. But it basically means you are resistant to a lot of different antibiotics. It's a staph infection that's um, a big super bug. Um, in our like Western world, we, we've got a lot of good medicine. Um, and not many people die from it, but in other countries that, that are less fortunate, MRSA is a, is a pretty dangerous, highly contagious um, infection. So I got it, and then I found out it got into my bloodstream. And so they told me that um, because of the bug being uh, how it was and because of the infection I left for so long, um, they said that it's highly likely it's in my blood. I need to come back to the hospital to get intravenous um, antibiotics sent through my blood to try to kill it. Um, I think I was in hospital for about a week uh, because my face started swelling up and this, this, they, they told me it can come out of your vital organs such as your heart, your brain um, once it gets in the blood like that and so it came out my face and my whole like face and my nose just swelled um, so that didn't do too good for my modelling career but I, um, I, I, I suffered. It was terrible. And I found out that um, they said that you're very lucky to live. Normally when it comes out the face at this level, if you leave it for uh, more than a few days, they said it's, it's a, there's a good chance that you might not be, you wouldn't be around um, because this place is so vital in this area of, of the, the face. Um, so yeah, I had MRSA. And I asked her, how long does it stay around for? asked the nurse and she said usually it takes about two years most people have MRSA for a while you can cure it but a lot of people get it and then they re-get it and then they give it to their family and their family gets it if they live with if you live with your family which I did at the time so the nurse said you can't you have to wash your clothes separately wash your sheets separately you know just don't don't touch them <laughs> for two years like don't touch your family don't shake don't breathe next to them you know um, so I mean that was problematic hearing that, well, I guess it's been a little bit long here, but long story short, I had a boss of mine when I was doing my electrical apprenticeship uh, at the time, he came in and visited me in hospital and he said that he had just felt the Lord told him that I was healed and he said that I've been praying for you and I just know that you've, whatever you have is gone, you're healed. And I was like, okay, um, what do I need to do? Like he said, just you you'll be fine. He said, you'll probably leave tomorrow. Or he said, you'll leave tomorrow. Um, and he just said, you won't have to come back. And I was like, I was like, wow, how do you know that? Like, that's, this is, I was scared. And he just says, it's gone. You're healed. And so I was confronted. Do I believe this? Do I, do I doubt this? Do I, what do I do? Nothing I can do, right? Or I had all these questions. I just chose to believe. And I just said, all right, well, Lord, if this is something you're doing, you've told my, my, my boss, who's a pastor as well, you've, You've told him that I'm healed, then I'll believe it. And so it turns out that um, I was meant to go back uh, every month just to do checkups with them, just to make sure that I'm safe and that everything was, um, you know, going to plan. But I didn't need to. 
It's been about eight years now. I haven't gone back once. I never had a single swelling that come up since. I haven't had any pain. I haven't had any infections that look anything like that, um, apart from the occasional little pimple here and there, but I'm not worried about that. Nothing MRSA-like at all. It was gone completely. And I, and that's glory to God. And that's something that's happened personally to me. And I look at that and I think, I ask the question, is there a natural explanation for that? Can that just naturally happen? Well, I may, may, maybe it's possible. Maybe there's some natural explanation that's out there that's unknown. Okay? Um, but all I know is this, this one thing, that I believed and now I'm healed. I don't have any more MRSA. It's gone. Um, and when I told the nurse before I left, I said, what, what if I don't come back? And she said, oh, you'll be back. She said, everybody comes back. And I said, what, do you believe in miracles? And she says, I do. She says, but it's going to take a miracle. This, this thing will stick around. Your whole family usually gets it. And so I was thinking, oh, my goodness. So it'd be great to walk in if she's still working there just to say good day. So, yeah. So praise God. Another example of a miracle is actually the beginning of the universe, right? Creation. If you think about it, it fits the definition of a miracle nicely. Creation is a supernatural act of God that is not able to be solely attributed to scientific laws or natural causes. And so one way to defend the possibility of other cases of miracles is to look at the creation as a whole. Because for a God who can create a universe, it's a walk in the park to raise somebody from the dead. So, even when you look at the flood, or Israel crossing the Red Sea, or Jonah and the whale, or the resurrection of Christ, as I mentioned, this is child's play for a God who can create all things. So, if creation is actual, then every other miracle within and without of Scripture is at least possible. And we briefly showed last session that God did create the universe by looking at what the Scripture says, but also looking at the best evidence that we have in science today. So I want to look at just a couple objections, some, some of the main objections and challenges to miracles that come up today in, in the, you know, academic and literature and stuff. Um, some of the big ones are basically based off uh, a guy by the name of David uh, Hume. He's a secular atheist, brilliant man. Um, he, was an, yeah, he did not believe in God, he was an atheist, but um, he said, this was, this was his argument, he said that there can be no credible eyewitnesses of miracles because miracles are incredible. He says, so even if you saw something that you thought was a miracle, um, it's not a credible eyewitness account because we all know that miracles are incredible. They, they, they don't make sense, they're not rational to believe. So every case, every claim, straight off the bat, it's irrelevant to him because we all know miracles don't happen. He argued as follows. He said, number one, natural law is by definition a description of regular occurrence. Gravity, for example, you drop stuff and they always seem to fall. So you grab a bottle and every time you test it, gravity works. The natural law of gravity takes effect on the bottle as you suspend it in the air and it drops. Just like that. I meant that. Two, a miracle is by definition a rare occurrence. Three, the evidence for the regular is always greater than that for the rare. Four, 
A wise man always bases his belief on the greater evidence. And five, therefore, a wise man should never believe in miracles. Challenging. Can anybody spot something that's faulty in this argument? In order to avoid or reject a conclusion that it's unwise to believe in miracles, something in these first four uh, premises have to be false or less likely um, true than, than something else. Can anyone have a, get, have a guess? A wise man always bases his belief on the greater evidence. That's, that's fairly, it's fairly reasonable. What about number three? The evidence for the regular is always greater than the evidence for the rare. Is that true? What if you had evidence that was extraordinary for a miracle and that was considered rare? Would that evidence suffice for belief in it, even if it was rare? Well, according to David Hume, if something is rare, then it doesn't... Well, there's always evidence that, that can go towards a belief that's natural, right? He would say, if something's rare, then you, it's most likely not going to be the case because there's always something that is more evidential or ev evidentially based, um, and therefore you should believe that. I think this is really faulty logic, it's not a very good argument against miracles because, interestingly, but interestingly enough, it is the go-to argument for most skeptics today. They go to David Hume here. He then raised a second objection here. He said, Hume, he says, miracles are not part of human experience and therefore we cannot believe that they are really, that there is really a God who is acting in history in this way. But if you look at the world today, most people actually don't agree with David Hume. Most people around the world today believe in miracles. About 80% of the US claim to have either experienced or witnessed a miracle. Three quarters of US doctors as well as part of that. Most people in Africa, Asia and Latin America also believe in miracles. So it's hardly the fact that miracles are not part of human experience. Most people actually affirm the reality of miracles. The other thing to mention is that it makes sense for miracles to be infrequent or extraordinary. They require the frequent ordinary to be meaningfully contrasted with. Otherwise, they would all too easily be grouped in with the normal and then the message that they convey would be less significant. Can you imagine trying to share Jesus with an unbeliever and saying, Jesus rose from the dead and then he says, yeah, my uncle rose from the dead too. We just paid for his funeral. It's like... Or if 10% of everybody who ever died came back to life straight after, the death, you know, after their death, and then you came and said, well, Jesus rose from the dead, I mean, it would be less of a significant statement because it's, it's quite, maybe not super common, but it's less, it's, it's more frequent. So, in response to Hume's first objection, we can see that infrequencies of miracles, rather than opposing the possibility of miracles, actually provides good reason and is consistent for their happening. Likewise, with his second objection, it turns out to be the exact opposite, as we mentioned. Most people believe in miracles. A third objection is that, this one's probably one of the biggest ones that come up too. This one's very, very popular. Violation of natural laws. So miracles aren't possible because miracles violate natural laws, or laws of physics and chemistry. It goes like this. 
We know that the laws of physics and chemistry, or the laws of nature, describe how reality must function. And even if God created the world, he too would have to submit to these laws, which means he could never act inside of the world, which is just a non sequitur. It doesn't follow that just because God creates a world that he has to run by exactly the parameters that he's set the world up to run naturally. God could do whatever he likes with the world that he makes. But the objection here is that the laws of physics and chemistry are necessary and cannot be interrupted or violated. And a miracle, by definition, would interrupt the law of nature. Or in other words, because all events have to obey natural laws, miracles are therefore impossible. This is the dominant view in mainstream science today. In fact, it's not even a scientific view. It's a philosophical view. Um, It's called methodological naturalism. It argues that all that exists and occurs can be eventually, can be or will be eventually explained ultimately in the end by the hard sciences of physics and chemistry. And so because miracles cannot be explained by the hard sciences, they therefore cannot exist. But where did this rule come from? Who says that that only physical and chemical laws of nature are necessary prescriptions for how the universe must function and everything inside the world must function? In fact, if we look at the world around us, we can see that we interrupt or supersede natural laws all the time. So the law of gravity right now is, is holding this water bottle down. But if I pick it up, I suspend it in the air. If I'm to remove my hand, then the law of gravity works every time. It pulls this thing down, right? But have I violated the law of gravity by by holding this bottle up? There's no rule that this bottle has to be operated by gravity. Right now, I'm actually superseding this by holding this. So we do this all the time in, in everyday experience. If I was to, another example is kick a soccer ball to you, and you could either stop it with your foot, you could kick it back, or you could just let it continue rolling past until it eventually stops. Same thing applies. By you stopping the ball, have you violated a natural law? If you left the ball to roll on its own, the natural laws could explain how fast it's going, how far it's traveled, uh, what resistance it came into um, in order for it to slow down, things like that. But if the argument is everything that occurs, including my action to hold this bottle up, has to abide by physical laws, That's what you call question begging. It just means that you're assuming your conclusion in your argument. You've reached your conclusion with what you already want to conclude with. Um, It's logically fallacious. It's not a good argument. Um, And and for obvious reasons, we could say a lot of things about that. It wouldn't be rational to hold to um, many beliefs if you started with question begging assumptions. So needless to say, if we can suspend natural laws, then why can't God? So a miracle is not a violation of a physical law because there's nothing about the universe that demands that everything must be caused or explained in natural terms. And as I said, to assume this is simply to beg the question and not provide good reasons to reject miracles. Objection four, really quickly. I've never seen a miracle, therefore they don't happen. This one surprisingly comes up a lot. Straight off the bat, can anyone think of any fallacious reason. Can anyone see why this isn't a good argument? 
I personally have never seen Japan, but I would still be rational in believing that it exists. We've never seen gravity either. We see the effects of gravity all the time. We see how gravity affects objects, but we don't see gravity, but yet we all are rational in believing that there is a law, something like gravity, even if we can't fully grasp what gravity is. So just because you have not seen something does not mean that it does not occur. I'm amazed how often this is brought up. Now, I mentioned earlier that we're going to talk about the resurrection next time, but I'll touch just a little bit on this. Mike Lycona, he is a New Testament scholar, and he's one of the leading voices on the resurrection. And he said that the main objection to the resurrection as a miracle is not a lack of historical evidence. He said, we have that. Rather, it's a matter of worldview. Because the resurrection of Christ requires a supernatural being to exist. Something, sometimes, no matter how much evidence you show somebody, it's still not enough to convince them. That is because, often, it's not an evidence thing. It's a worldview thing. We often prefer to believe or not believe in certain things because of how they make us feel and how they fit into our already constructed worldview rather than allow our worldview to adapt to any given truth. And we need to be careful of this, especially as Christians also. Otherwise, we may end up with a worldview that is irrational or unlivable or worse, offensive to God. How many of us have heard of Blaise Pascal? A few of us. How many have heard of the calculator? A few more. He's often contributed, associated with bringing the first mechanical calculator, um, inventing that, which is pretty cool. He was a 17th century French um, mathematician, philosopher, inventor, theologian. Any title you can find, you can throw at Blaise Pascal. He's that smart. He's famously known for saying, people most invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. And sometimes, we as Christians, are just as easily susceptible to this as anybody else. So when it comes to miracles, where does the burden of proof rest? If you make a claim, normally you need to provide some reason or some support for that claim. Interestingly enough, the burden of proof remains not on the person who is open to the possibility of miracles, but the burden of proof remains on the person or the skeptic, to show that miracles are impossible. If their claim is that miracles don't occur or can't occur, then the burden of proof actually rests on the person making that positive claim. And then they need to su support that with some evidence or some argument. And not only do we not have good reasons to disbelieve in miracles, but we actually have good reasons to believe in miracles. The burden of, the proof, the burden of proof, however, is on us if we do defend a miracle claim, such as Jesus rose from the dead. So, and that's what we'll be talking about next time. We're going to talk about support for the resurrection, what historical evidences are available that we can look to for the resurrection, because this is a claim that a miracle took place in history, in a time, in a place, to a man. And so, if you're going to make a claim about this, as Christians, it's important that we have some justification for that. It's fine to go to the Bible, and it's fine to say this is God's word, and this is what it says. And I think it's also okay to say, 
And here's the historical evidence that supports it all through church history. Here's what people have lived and also died defending. Here are the evidences. Because the resurrection was not an event that took place with one person in a room or in a cave and then they went out and told the world. It was multiply attested, multiply witnessed. Everybody saw it. And when Paul wrote about it, he would say, you can go and still talk to these people who are eyewitnesses today. They saw the risen Lord. They saw him walking around. And so he was saying, don't just talk to me. Go chat with everybody. So he was, he was basically pointing to the population and saying, this was done in front of everybody. And so it wasn't just a little event. It was public. And so that's good evidence that, that is in favor of the Christian worldview. So I really encourage you that if you're interested in this and you want to know more about that evidence that's there, um, don't miss next time we're going to talk about the resurrection. It's going to be a lot of fun. So this evening we've looked at what a miracle is. We've briefly discussed the purpose of miracles. We had a look at some of the main objections to miracles from different worldviews. And then we've showed that these objections um, either were logically fallacious or were perhaps beside the point. Um, and we've shown how essential the topic of miracles is to the Christian faith and the Christian worldview, especially when considering the resurrection of Jesus. And so I really, really look forward to that uh, next time we're together. So I think that will do for this evening. I trust it's been helpful um, and encouraging and um, informative. And I wanted just to close with the time of worship. Um, so if you need uh, to leave, we're essentially wrapping this up. But if you want to stick around and worship at the end, uh, we're going to make that opportunity there for us as well. Um, so I'll close with a prayer and then um, we'll conclude the service with some worship. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you, God. And we thank you for your word and we thank you for your truths, Lord. And we thank you that we can know you that we can study you in your word, Lord, and we can study you in the world that you've given us. And Lord, we just know that you are a miracle-working God. Lord, you're the God who can do the impossible. You're the God who's not limited by our understanding. You're, you're not a God who's limited by the natural laws of the world. Lord, that you're a God who is sovereign, that you see all, God. And God, you have a plan and a purpose in this world for each and every one of us. And we're so thankful, God, that you're not a distant God who creates a world and remains totally impersonal to it. But, Lord, that you care about us so much and that you love us so much that you actually sent your Son into this world so that we could relate to you even more, God. So that, Lord, that we could be close with you. We could know you as Heavenly Father, not just as Creator God. And, Lord, we thank you for the miraculous we trust you with everything that we are, Lord. We trust, Lord, that this week will be safe. Watch over us and bring us all back next time we talk. And God, we just want to say that our whole lives are in your hands. We give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would like more information or resources on this or other topics, or if you would like to sow into this ministry financially to help us share messages just like this one each week, please visit our website at brainer.org.au.